I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. Probably going to be our spiciest edition to date, although we are pretty mellow, mellow guys. Stage 11 of the Tour de France did look to be one of, one of those snooze fests once again, and there was some napping done. But boy, oh boy, did it heat up in the last 10 kilometers. We will get there. There is an intermediate sprint. We've also got Terreno Adriatico, stage three analysis, quite a detailed analysis and going through the teams and the GC contenders as well in the latter half of this podcast and also a bit of transfer news at the end. But Benji, stage 11 of this year's tour, what was the profile looking like? Where was the intermediate sprint? And did anything interesting happen during the stage before the finale? Today's stage was a relatively flat one. It was also classified as a flat one, starting at Châtelet-en-Plage to Poitiers. 170 kilometers. It has 1k one point and one intermediate sprint, as always. PK one point is halfway the race, in a bit of a portion with quite a few hills. It's not the largest climb, the Côte de Cherveux, a mere 1.1 kilometers at 4.4%, meaning it's not exactly worth it for the polka dot hunters to venture into the breakaway. 17 kilometers after the KOM, we've got the actual intermediate sprint that comes just after a slight uphill section that is around 60 kilometers from the line. When it comes to the finish, they have this small, small hill just before the line, and it actually did influence the race. It's not a large climb. It's 0.7 kilometers, so 700 meters of climbing at 4.1%, but it sure as hell did spice up the last two kilometers. The action already started in the neutral zone. That's quite surprising usually, but we had a crasher, unfortunately. Cyril Gauthier of BNB Hotels, Alexei Lutsenko of Atstana, and Ilnar Zakarin of CCC. They did come out of that pretty unharmed, so not that big of a deal. But obviously, it's not that great to hit the deck so early on in the stage. There was only one attacker that launched away in the start. That's Mathieu Ladigny of Groupama FDG. He pretty much quickly racked up a gap of over five minutes, so pretty strong attack there. But that five-minute gap was made in about a 10-kilometer margin, so... The peloton was not pacing at all there. And about 20 kilometers later, so pretty early on in the race still, we had another attack that tried to launch towards Ladinu. It was an attack of some pretty good riders. Berstelberger from Bora, Stefan Kung of Groupama once again, yesterday very active as well. Steven of Trek, Tom von Osbroek of Israel Cycling Academy, well, startup nation now these days. Nassen Oliver Nassen for Ajazer and Goggle for NTT. That does give us already a, a sign that Steven is not sprinting for Trek today. So the other people probably knew that already at that point as well. And the Peloton became active. DQS was unhappy with that, the Koenig, for Bennett. And they basically dropped El Tractor at the front of the Peloton, pacing like Matt Tim the Cladic. And he almost did it alone. And he put the gap to that group straight to zero. He caught them all and also dropped the gap to Ladinu down to one minute. So from five minutes to one minute in a span of like 30 kilometers, quite crazy, Declaric, honestly. But after that, when they caught that chasing group, the gap grew back to three minutes, so the attack of the others was pretty much not really worth it afterwards. In the peloton, we did see Mulberger at the back of the peloton. I'd like to 
pick into that a bit later on after we discuss the final sprint because he looked to be quite sick and I'm not sure whether that's actually a good idea to be in the race at that point. And then we also had a crash. It didn't involve too many riders, but we did see Jon Izaguirre of Astana, which is a rider that helps out Lopez during the climbing stages, so he might have a bit of a weakness there. But in regards to the end of the stage, quite a lot happened in the sprint. Yeah, so there was the sprint trains assembling with about 13Ks to go, quick step on the right-hand side, a lot of Sudar there as well. CCC presenting at the front once again, maybe riding for Trentin. I think GVA was leading out Trentin. Uh, yeah, all the sprinters teams were assembling. Obviously, Sam Bennett's in the green jersey, almost a fair bit ahead of Sagan now, and looked like it was going to be a normal sprint. I was barely watching until 6Ks to go. Lucas Postelberger for Bora Hansgrohe went off the front in a really strong move, and it was it was a flat run into the finish, like not too many corners as well, not that technical. Yeah, it's just a fantastic move from Bora sending Postelberger up the road. He was followed by Askren, who was on the front for Quickstep. Jungels was on his wheel. Uh, they were as part of the you know Dekoni Quickstep leadout train. They split off from the peloton in that chase, and. The reason that Bora Hansgrohe sent Postelberger up the road, A, probably maybe spur of the moment, not a planned thing. I think it might have been planned, though. He, The idea is to disrupt the quick step and Lotto Sadal lead-out trains because if Bennett is getting dropped off by Murku with 150 to go, if Kluger is dropping off Caleb there as well, if Caleb is on Bennett's wheel with 150 to go, Sagan is not beating those guys. Same with maybe even Sunweb bleeding up Bowl. Sagan probably wouldn't beat Bowl head-to-head in a sprint. This meant that Quickstep's lead-out train was completely disrupted. They had two of their guys going off the front. They actually all worked together for a little bit because they got about a 12-second gap on the peloton. It actually looked like Ineos chasing initially out of the peloton. I saw some dark blue jerseys, and I'm sure a lot of Sadal also were doing the chase, particularly at the end as well, but... Yeah, seemed like Ineos were chasing. Don't really know why. I think they were at the front. This was before 3Ks to go, so maybe they were at the front still to keep uh, Egan Bernard in good position and Luke Rowe thought, well, I'm still here at the front and I'm still going to keep him in good position and then after 3Ks we can peel off. So, yeah, Postelberger was then sitting on those guys. They eventually did get brought back by Lotto Sudal, but then no one really had a lead-out man. It then slowed down. It was actually Greg Van Avermaet leading out Trentin on one side of the peloton, on the narrow side as they went through a left-hand barrier, left-hand corner with maybe uh, 1,800 metres to go. NTT were leading out Bosenhagen once again. I think Valscheid was leading out for Bosenhagen. They let out too early once again. And then it was a bit of a messy sprint. I don't even know if we could say there was a proper lead out. Maybe B&B were the last team to take it up for Brian Cockart, except... Yeah, Cockard didn't even really seem to be on their wheel. And then in the sprint, it was Wad Van Aert who kicked early. He got the license to sprint once again today. Obviously, no real need to protect Primoz in, in GC, wearing the yellow jersey. Wad Van Aert didn't really have a great sit, so he just decided to go really early. Uh, and at least he did have clear air. He went over to the barrier, not deviated, as in he, he launched his sprint on the barrier, on the right-hand barrier. Sprinting early, I thought, oh... Is this going to be wild time once again? Bennett came off his wheel, or maybe Bennett was a little bit ahead of him and, and went to the left-hand side. Caleb Ewan, he's like a bit like Robbie McEwen. You can never really see him until right at the last moment when he presents 
at the line. He was tucked in on Bennett's wheel. Ewan went round to the left of Bennett. I could see – I was watching Peter Sagan the whole time because I'm, I'm more focused – I'm really focused on the points classification, the uh, competition. And Sagan was initially on a good wheel. He was initially on Bennett, I believe, and he fought for that wheel. And, and the reverse lead-out from Postelberger really, yeah, really played into his hands and set him up quite well. And then he got boxed in a fair bit. He got boxed into the left-hand side. Sagan had no move, room to the left-hand side. He went to the right. I, we were looking at it from the fixed camera front-on shot at rider level, and where you look at Walt's, Walt, Walt Van Aert was on that barrier, where you look where Walt's elbow was, just pretty much no space, to be honest, uh, at all. And then Sagan, he went past Najdua, the Mondial rider, maybe Venturini on the right-hand side, got up to about level with Wal Van Aert's back wheel and then pushed past him using his head. We'll, we'll go into that in a little bit more detail. I'm just setting the scene for you. He gets through, comes to the line. It looks to be about level with Wal Van Aert. And then Ewan, in the last 25 metres, comes past Bennett, kind of like yesterday's sprint where maybe another 35, 50 metres he would have beaten Bennett on the line. Magnificent timing from Caleb Ewan. And we're going to also discuss who is the best sprinter in the world right now. So we've got a few conversations parked to deal with. The final standings were in this sprint. Ewan, Bennett second, Wal Van Aert third, Cockard fourth, Venturini fifth, Mads Pedersen sixth, Luca Mesquets seventh, Hofstetter eighth, Narsen ninth, and Ryan Gibbons for NTT tenth. So maybe they were actually sprinting for Gibbons, not Bosenhagen although Bosenhagen finished only four places behind him, so it's hard to be sure. We'll get into the Peter Sagan stuff in a second because those who haven't watched the stage will be wondering, Lantern, where is Peter Sagan in that list? But Benji, what was your initial reaction from that sprint? The, the Sagan stuff aside, you know, any comments on what Bora did tactically or Ewan or, or did Bennett? I mean, Bennett did everything right from my perspective, but yeah, how did you see the sprint? Like, obviously, everybody's going to be speaking about the incident between Wout van Aert and Sagan. And, well, I've got a lot to say about it, but we'll do that in a second. I do want to note on the fact that I feel like Kaká's lead-out train was pretty good. The only issue was that Kaká was not in the wheel, as you said. So he probably could have gotten a way better result if he was. Next to that, the fact that Bristol Berger did that early move earlier on, it might not have been really the plan to do it. But I'm not sure what happened there, because... We had Asgren and Jungels move up to Berger, And basically, Berger set up because obviously you would say, you've got two guys, I'm alone, so you can do the work DQS because they were still trying to get away, except for Berger. And Asgren started pacing like crazy to try and get Jungels as far as possible. And then it was Jungels' turn and Berger didn't take over. So if you're one and one there, Jungels and Berger, of which Jungels is technically the worst sprinter, why as Berger do you not continue there? That is what I've got in mind as, yeah, a bad thing in the board strategy. Uh, I think he was cooked, to be honest. I think he was kind of done. Otherwise, yeah, it would have made sense. I don't know why he wouldn't have continued the move. Maybe the idea was just to throw off Askren and and Jungles. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure why Pustelberger didn't continue. Um, but yeah, I think Askren maybe actually even pulled a little bit too hard when he came through, given that Jungels actually seemed to be in pretty good shape when Askren pulled off and pulled off completely and it was left with just those two. But yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. It's hard to say. Maybe 
in a world in a world tour race is hard enough, but in a Tour de France flat finish, attacking with six k's to go on the flat to not blow up before the line, you need to be like Fabian Cancellara god mode. So my base assumption would be that he just couldn't do it. Yeah, I do agree on that because we saw that after they were basically almost caught that Postelberger did try a last attack and it didn't really get too far. So he might have been out of energy indeed, or he might have seen that it wasn't really going to happen. So maybe it was like, yeah, this is not really worth it. Let's look for my sprinter and see if I can help him somewhat, even though probably Postelberger's work was done the moment he was caught by the peloton. But about the sprint itself, yeah, there's only one thing I can really uh, discuss really today because. It's so important. The Sagan disqualification, or relegation rather. So for the sprint, what happened was, well, Bernard, and you probably see if you're on Twitter or whatever, I'll try and do a frame-by-frame frame video on it maybe tomorrow if I get time. Wavanat, as I said, was on the right-hand barrier. He launched his sprint on the right-hand barrier. People are like, oh, well, he did close the gap a little bit. And th- there's two things. There's deviating off your line. And then there is the natural like side-to-side sway when you're sprinting out of the saddle at 70 kilometers an hour. Now, if you looked at my Instagram when I drew those tram tracks for the Stage 1 Bennett sprint, you can see I drew them at double the width of a rider because there obviously has to be some sort of, you know, 100 meter on, on a track, an athletics track, the band, the lanes are not the same width as people's shoulders they're maybe double the width uh, because there has to be some sort of room to move in your lane like there's your lane but it's still wider than the riders the rider itself and yeah Wavanat maybe moved like I don't know 15 centimeters to the right if you look at it in the overhead shot I'm sure you can find a freeze frame where there looks like there might be half of a gap and then you go to the next frame and it looks like there isn't a gap because while shoulders are dropping to the right-hand side each time he's pedaling on the right-hand side and drops his right pedal. But when you look at it not in a freeze frame by frame and just like slow motion video, you can see the overall perspective is from both front on, especially from front on and overhead, there just really wasn't a gap to go through. And Sagan wasn't having it. Sagan was like, I'm going through this gap. And it was not wide enough for him. And he initially leant on Wavanat. Then he put his head into Wavanat's right hip or body, basically a headbutt, uh, but more of a more using his head to move Wavanat. And the thing that really makes this like a clear relegation for me is he didn't stop there. He, he's used the head to move Wavanat. Wavanat then yielded to the left. And there was enough space for Sagan. And then Sagan kept ducking in on him to the left. You can see him right to the line, moving in on the left on Wout van Aert. Because I think he thought Wout was going to win the, win the sprint. Keeps ducking in on him. And there's no... I don't see how anyone could justify that as at the right at the end as being necessary for him to create space for himself. Now, there's some people who are saying... There's an argument to, to be made. Well, not really in my opinion. But some people are arguing that he had to use his head to create the space. I'll get to that after I've thrown to Benji, but I don't, yeah, I don't know how anyone can justify then continuing to move in on Wout. But yeah, how do you view this sprint, Benji? And do you want to run through the actual applicable rules for sprints just to remind everybody? 
Yes, I do. So let me get into it. We've got two rules that apply to this kind of sprint in the sense that there's more rules than two that apply to the sprint, but the two that are notable in this one, we've got rule 2336, which is basically called sprints. Riders shall be strictly forbidden to deviate from the line they selected when launching into the sprint and in so doing endangering others. That's one rule you need to keep in mind. That's the line deviation rule. The other one is conduct of participants in cycling races. All license holders shall refrain from any acts of violence, threats or insults or any other improper behavior or from putting other persons in danger. Persons, that's apparently a word. I didn't even know that. I want to apply these two to the sprint that happened today. We've got Sagan opening a gap up by basically using his head, pushing into Wout van Aard. You could see this as a headbutt. You could see this just as endangering others because it's obviously endangering others. So you're breaking the second rule there. Now, some people have said it is because there was a selfie stick by the side of the road. And on pictures that is visible, I personally do not believe that a sprinter would move out of the way for a selfie stick. That's just not really what has happened in all the sprints with other selfie sticks. So I'm not using this as an excuse to blame Sagan or anything, but I still believe the rule is valid there, even if there's a selfie stick handling there, because... I've seen riders headbutt phones before. Riders have headbutted phones. They don't even notice. They got their, they're looking sort of down. I'm not even sure Sagan saw the selfie stick. Yeah, I do agree with that. And additionally, I want to add to that, that some people on Twitter have also pointed out that while he was leaning onto Outfinard, his bike was straight moving into a barrier that was a tiny bit more into the road than the other barriers. So they were saying if he didn't move to the left, he might have crashed. I disagree because the only reason that his bike was aiming at that barrier is because he was leaning on Outfinard. If he didn't, you can see it in the overhead camera view. He used it. He he didn't he didn't headbutt him. He used his head as the means with which to push. Wadvana, uh, if that makes sense. So, like a headbutt, we think of more of like a an actual act of vi- violence. And there's, you know, there's gray line, gray lines or gray zones to all of this. But yeah, I didn't see it as a headbutt. It was, it's because he couldn't take his hand off the bars. Uh, I think we saw when Matthew Vanderpool won his first national championships road race for Netherlands, he put his right hand on Ramon Sinkeldam to comp the left hand side on the barriers. I think it he was using it in the same sort of intent as that um except it clearly to me was endangering another rider because well first i want to give my unadulterated perspective of view on this and i've looked at it we we cooled off we waited an hour after this we waited for all the news to come through just so we made sure we had seen everything you know the cavendish again disqualification still fresh in our minds from 2017 and I'm really, I'm really happy and commend the UCI for their decision. The commissaires, this is not the race organisers that make this decision. It's the UCI commissaires. They, there are photos on Twitter that people have taken where they have the Bora DS or staff in the jury van, presumably pleading Sagan's case. I don't know if TJV complained. Certainly, Wout van Aert was pissed off justifiably at the end of the sprint after the sprint, or whether the UCI commissaires looked into it themselves. I mean, it's pre- it was pretty obvious what happened. This wasn't something, you know, deep in the pack in the sprint, like maybe Dainese and Merlier in Stage 2 Terreno. You know, this was clear as, like what happened was very clearly shown on live TV. 
for me, there's just no gap. And there was no safe gap to go through. And that's why, you know, people talking about Ackerman stage one victory at Toronto is really hard because I think if you listen to the podcast two days ago, you might have sensed Benji and I, we, we weren't gushing over it, right? We weren't being like, this is the best sprint victory ever. What an insane performance, you know, courageous. We were like, this happened and, yeah, it could have, it could have ended up badly if Gaviria hadn't moved to the left. There wasn't much space there. The, the key difference for me is Ackerman didn't move Gaviria. Ackerman didn't endanger Gaviria. I think he really... In- just endangered himself, to be honest. Uh, but I don't see how he endangered Gavidia. He could have. Yeah, I think it was just the right side of the line and you you can't be relegating or penalising someone for what Ackerman did. It, it was still dangerous, but yeah, he certainly didn't touch Gavidia or like move him too much. Whereas Sagan, there's no gap. He knows as he's going through, he knows when he's about to go through, he decides, okay, I'm going to, I'm probably going to have to physically move Wad Van Aert off his line and does so. And then I think it actually might have cost Wad Van Aert sprint victory, honestly. It it definitely would have caused him to lose momentum. He managed to then he then sort of went to the left and then bumped off Sam Bennett to the left. It was kind of like a four-man version of the Alaphilippe, Kwiatkowski, Sagan, Milan, San Remo, where they all three came together. Might have cost Wad Van Aert. But yeah, the Sagan move certainly to me was not acceptable because he should have just when he's already in the gap it's too late it's not you can't say once he's level with Wout and then say oh well he's got nowhere to go what else is he to do it's like no 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 you got to take it a step back and say he has deliberately put himself in that situation and gone up where there was no gap and then he's endangered another rider to get himself out of that situation so he Sagan got boxed in, he should have backed out, but he really wants that stage win, he's really fighting for the points jersey, and um, and he didn't. So is there anything I've missed from the what actually happened, Benji? I want to add another thing, and this is something that is, well, I don't find it controversial at all because it's clear, and I also drew the lines like you did on Instagram that one day, and I compared it. The moment that he headbutts Van Aert to the side, he has a line, which is next to the barrier, because obviously he just created that gap next to the barrier. And at that point, he breaks another UCI rule. And that is the one I applied earlier, the line deviation one, because the moment he starts sprinting, he is sprinting at the barrier. And the moment he crosses the line, there's like a meter and a half or more next to him. They can fit two sprinters there. And you see him move to the left in that sprint, and that causes Van Aert to move to the left as well again, because he almost hit Van Aert again. And at that point, Bennett also has to move his lane. And even Ewan has to go around way more than he should have. So he basically puts three riders in danger there and deviates his line over two meters. So yeah, that's another UCI rule break there. But I do want to add to that. Bennett did the same. And... He didn't get anything for it, which is not an argument not to do it, but it's an argument to do it better next time if Bennett does it it again, in my honest opinion, because some people use that as an argument to, well, it didn't happen last time, so it shouldn't happen this time. No, it should happen last time, and it should happen this time as well. We we called that out on the pod. We we called that out for the Stage 3 podcast, I'm pretty sure. We said 
if you don't penalize this, then you only penalize when there's crashes. And I was much more confident the UCI were going to do something today because Bennett didn't touch Ewan. Ewan still won the sprint, so there was no protest and there was no, like, to the casual fan, no real coming together of the riders in Stage 3. But me and you, we were like, this is a clear deviation. (laughs) This is against the rules and it is kind of dangerous. And that's why today, just for clarity's sake, I was hoping that Sagan won today's stage. I really wanted to see him get that Tour de France stage win this year. I really wanted him to win the stage. Again, Benji and I, uh, I think we touch on this later in the pod as well. We're not we're not biased, but we have to call it how it is. And I thought it was a dangerous move. I think the relegation is correct. Sam Bennett now goes about 60 or nearly 70 points clear of him, 68 points clear of Sagan in the points classification. It's a big blow for Sagan's ambitions for that jersey. I'm not uh, Bennett is now like 70% favourite for it, 75% favourite for it. Brian Cockard is actually only 18 points behind Sagan for that. But, yeah, second stage win for Caleb Ewan, another second for Sam Bennett, and Wal Van Aert still looking very competitive in the sprints. But, yeah, Benji, I mean, what have you seen on Twitter? People, people are going to blow up because Sagan's the, the highest-paid, most high-profile rider in the sport, and there's always going to be people saying... This is unfair. I've seen some, frankly, I've seen, frankly, some ludicrous statements already from people saying that's just sprinting when it's like, yes, that has occurred a lot in sprinting, but is that a good thing? (laughs) Do we not want to make the sport safer where we can? Yes, rule, you know, breaking of the rules has occurred a lot in history. Uh, I'm not sure that's a justification for it continuing. I actually had a bit of a discussion earlier and it's because I posted on Twitter literally what you said, like Sagan, I want to love you, but you're making it really hard. That's literally what I wrote. And one of the reactions to me saying that he should be relegated for this was, but he did not murder anyone. What? Like, honestly, if any time a rule has to be applied, somebody has to be hurt first, then it's really not a good way to judge Another person responded, did they crash, question mark. Well, it shouldn't matter. The consequences should not matter. And that is why we still have these things happening. And I do want to clarify one thing with the green jersey standings. The fact that he obviously lost the points at the finish line, but he also lost an additional 25% of the points he could have gotten at the finish line. So an extra 13 points of the 50 that he could have gotten. So that's why he now has, I think, less points than at the intermediate sprint in the afternoon. Yeah, that's correct. That nullified his intermediate sprint points. And just to a few things that we've seen on Twitter that I think reinforce that, you know, we obviously, it's our opinion, so we'd hope they're right. Bora Hansgrohe have said, we accept the jury decision. We always aim to win, but in a respectable way, even when the adrenaline is high in a tour sprint finish. And... Wout van Aert said in an interview with, I think, Daniel Freib, who's working for ITV Cycling, uh, not just plugging them, I just saw it on my Twitter, Wout van Aert said, I was really scared in the sprint. And Wout van Aert, after the sprint, I think he said, like, he put the middle finger up to Sagan and said, fuck you, and uh, and then Sagan said, what, me? Which I I found kind of grating, like, yeah, you know what you did, mate. Um, But, yeah, Bora Hansgrohe accepted 
I'm sure Sagan will come out with a statement, maybe half apologising or saying he accepts it or whatever. But yeah, it's I'm glad they actually enforce the rules. Hopefully they can do so when it's less high profile and on a more consistent basis. I think, what do you think about a yellow card system, Benji? I feel like it's a good idea because it gives people warnings for what they are doing if it's not as bad as, for example, well, there's line deviations and there's line deviations. And being able to give a yellow card there in a lesser form of a line deviation might make certain that that rider does not do it more severely in the future. But then you'd have to think about when do these expire? Is this just in the race? Is this in the season? So it's a bit of a difficult system and it needs to be a well thought out concept before you can actually apply it, I think. Yeah, but I I definitely think something like that is a good idea. I feel like the Bennett one where ultimately there was no no real harm done, but it was a something bad could have happened if it had been a packed finish. That was a perfect situation for a yellow card where he doesn't lose any points, he still gets his second position, but he's put on notice hey, you, yeah, you, you can't be deviating like that. And if you do it again, um, there's some further punishment if you get another yellow card. Uh, I haven't thought up the actual process or the protocol for the rules, but if they can do it in other sports, yellow and red cards, I'm sure we can do something similar in cycling. Whether it makes a difference or not, you might be dubious. But listen, if, if this is enforced consistently and really strictly, I'm telling you, it will change behavior. It will 100% will change behavior. It is like any sport. When they penalized holding in the penalty box at one particular World Cup, I can't remember, in football, and you know, every time you held in the box, someone would you know, be a penalty. There were more goals from corners and people stopped holding as much. It, it actually will change behavior really quickly. Um, or do you not think so, Benji? People, do you, are you, what do you think about the people saying this is just the way sprinters are and if you change the rules, it won't change anything. I disagree. I totally disagree. And you will obviously have moments where someone accidentally apply, like does something in a sprint, but there's moments where it's super clear that a rider makes, even if it's a split decision, some riders know what they're doing when they're doing it. And this is not just a split decision. Like you can obviously say that a line deviation might be a split decision, but this is basically twice in a row as, first of all, using your head in a sprint is just not done, in my honest opinion. Renshaw was punished for it. Cavendish did it a lot. Sometimes was punished for it, sometimes not. But plenty of people do it in the past already and plenty of people have been punished for it. Plenty of people have not. And that's kind of the consistency of cycling rules, unfortunately. And yeah, maybe, yeah, I don't know what to add there really. It's like, they need to be applied more consistently. We said it at the Bennett one end. Because Bennett wasn't really applied consistently, this means that today you've got people saying that, well, Bennett didn't get one. So, yeah, it's annoying, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's annoying for us because I guess we are actually quite strict on it, but we're also, I think, quite consistent on it. Um, But yeah, that's probably enough of the Sagan stuff. If you disagree or agree with us or you want to hit us up with your perspective on it, make sure to leave it a comment on uh, on the YouTube video or on the hashtag LRCP. If you think we've missed anything, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of freeze frame analysis, etc., from people that comes out. Um, but again, you know, it's just a, a relegation in the sprint. It's not a, he hasn't been thrown out of the race or anything. So we don't need to go too overboard. 
On to something else that was asked on the hashtag LRCP on Twitter, which was the Gregor Mulberger pulling out of the race. Were you concerned by this, Benji? I think the the actual question was, you know, what do we think about a rider? They were all doing 150 watts midway through the stage, like ease. They're going easy. People were complaining the race was so boring. And Mulberger was at the back and he was wearing a, a dark green jersey. I was like, hold on, it's not raining. Hold on. Abora Hansgrohe are wearing special dark green jerseys because they got the point. Oh, no, they don't even have the point. The Bennett's not on Bora anymore. I was like, what's going on? And he was wearing a thermal jersey during summer in France, not raining because he had fever or something or chills last night. Do you have any further in- intel on this, Benji? Yeah, I also heard the rumor that he had a cold and had fever the night before. So I can't really say it for sure because I did not hear any Bora guys say it. So it was just in a in the Discord server that I heard that news. But I believe that if a rider in the times of Corona, of COVID, has symptoms aligning to COVID, then they shouldn't be riding the race, even though if they were negative before, because it's just a bit of a joke in my honest opinion. Like, firstly, the safety of the rider, you probably shouldn't do it, but it's also not a good time to do it. I can't believe it. Like, they say, I'm pretty sure Boris said he didn't have a temperature, so that's a, a COVID symptom, but come on. The guy's too sick to pedal at 150 watts in the peloton and he's wearing a thermal jersey when it's over like 23 degrees during a race in the middle of summer, taking it on and off because he's got chills during the Tour de France, which is hanging by a knife's edge, you know, during the middle of a corona pandemic. Everyone's put a lot of work in and millions of euro at stake, but maybe even a billion euro at stake for this event going ahead. We're halfway through. Do we really need, with Bookman now really out of GC, so he doesn't need a super domestique or a mountain domestique in Mulberger? Yeah, what's the what's the conservative decision to take there? And I think it was probably to not let him, not let him start. Now maybe he was actually fine this morning and he just had a rough night's sleep and he got a bit worse during the stage and and that's when he pulled out. But I think my issue was. Your man, your man Mulberger was, he was like hanging off, like yo-yoing the peloton for like half an hour or 20 minutes. And given that they knew he was not, you know, maybe a little bit sick and then he's on the thermal, in the thermal jersey and they're letting him like get dropped and yo-yo back off the back for like 20 minutes. I think they should have had him in the team car a lot sooner. Um, once he actually, like once it was clear that the guy could barely hang on, let alone be competitive. But I'm sure... Yeah, maybe maybe people will have another opinion. Maybe we're being too harsh, Benji. Do you think I don't think we're being too harsh, do you? No, I don't think so either. It's like I feel like it's a general rule right now. If you're sick, you don't go to work. So <laughs> it should be applied to cycling as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, even if you you got you all know listening to the podcast, if even if you don't technically have one of the corona symptoms, if you turn up to work with a bit of a sniffle or something, or you say, oh, I felt under the weather. What what do your, what's all your employers say? Now, maybe, maybe you have a terrible employer, but most employers say, hey, if you feel at all unwell, at all unwell, don't come in. So, yeah, I think <laughs> to then have him in the pillow, not a great look. Now, I hope he just tested negative for corona two days ago, so it's 90, 90% chance or whatever he doesn't have corona. 
but he might have a common cold or something as well. It, it still applies for basic basic sicknesses or other non-corona sicknesses. He, he might have a common cold. It probably doesn't want to be breathing on other riders or whatever. But that's enough about Mulberger. Did he? I'm not sure if he DNF'd. I think he did abandon um, in the end because, yeah, he was really, really unwell. Any last thoughts on stage 11 of the Tour de France, Benji? It promised to be a pretty boring stage, and in the last 10 kilometres, we got a lot of mileage out of it. Any, this is your Anything else you've seen on Twitter that you've been particularly triggered by? Well, I, I'd like to live uh, outside of the Twitter for tonight, but I do want to add that I was hoping that after the stage we could really point out who was the best sprinter, but honestly, I can't at all. Oh, I can. It's Caleb Ewan. This was the perfect example where they had none of them really had a lead-out train, so it was perfect equality where it, we really got to see who is the best sprinter. I think, uh, actually, I'm not sure. Maybe maybe ben, uh, Ewan had a little bit of a lead-out from Kluger, but I don't really think so. And we got to see without a lead-out, Case Bowl, 18th, Viviani, 17th, Bonifacio, 15th, Caleb Ewan, 1st. Although, you know, Caleb Ewan was sitting on the wheel of Bennett. So, yeah, I think when it comes down to it, the best sprinter in the world who, if a team had to pick, okay, we want to win multiple Tour de France stages this year and we'll have a reasonably strong lead-out train, I think they would be picking Caleb Ewan over Sam Bennett. I think Ackerman's not looked that good. He's looked okay. He won the two stages at Torino, but that was just against Gaviria. He also has been a bit inconsistent before then. You're very inconsistent too. You've got to remember, this was Sam Bennett's first Tour de France stage win, by the way, with, I'd say, a stronger lead out than Ewan at this year's Tour. Ewan has five Tour de France sprint stages, including Champs-Élysées, in the last two years. Yeah, we've discussed it quite well. I um, can't really add too much to it. I don't think you can either at this point. We're willing to hear your opinion, so if you do have an opinion on this, be sure to share it. We're down to hear other perspectives because... We're very open to feedback on that. Nonetheless, tomorrow's stage is quite different. We've got a stage that is not directly laid out for the uh, sprinters, in my honest opinion. We've got a stage starting in Chauvigny and finishing in Sahol, which has a B-gate on it, a bonus second hill with about, I think it's 26 kilometers before the line. It's a climb of 3.8 kilometers at 7.7 average. Beforehand, we've got another climb, 4.8 kilometers at 6%. In the middle of the stage, two smaller climbs, 2.8 kilometers and 1.5 kilometers. There are 5% average and 8.8, but I think that's mainly for the breakaway. Although I don't think it's worth it for AK Wemking to dive in the breakaway and go for all these points because there's plenty of mountain stages for that in the future. Do you expect something on that B gate? Because I've got the feeling I don't. Not really, to be honest. They've got some big days coming up ahead of them. But that being said... Tade Pogacar looking down the barrel of a 3.7k, 7.5% climb. I'm not sure if the break is... It all depends on whether there's a breakaway up the road and whether the peloton can be... Bo- I think if a break goes, can, can the peloton really be bothered chasing the break on a stage such as this where other than the B-gate, there isn't really much to be gained on GC? What, that Category 3 climb, 6Ks at 5%, that's not going to do... No one's getting dropped on that. And then the, the B-gate one, yeah, sure, you might get the bonus seconds, but then you're not going to stay away the whole time. Uh, so it's not like the other day, Stage 9, where they could actually hold it to the line with additional seconds with the gap as well as the bonus seconds and the stage 
winning sec, sec bonus seconds available. So the incentive for the GC teams to really control things tomorrow are pretty pretty low, and I think it'll be a yeah. I think Alaphilippe has been saving the legs to launch launch there. Whether he can actually get a big enough gap, it's it's a little bit far from the finish. I think I'm relatively of the same opinion. I think if a break goes that those guys can actually make it to the finish line. I don't think that the Koenig will spend too many of their forces on Alaphilippe because they want to protect Green at all costs and they've got an intermediate sprint pretty early on. So I think they'll be busy with that. So I think if Alaphilippe needs to go for the stage, he might need to do it in the breakaway, which might be possible. But yeah, maybe even we could see a Hirschi attack or something. But this is also kind of territory for Trenton and such. So there's plenty of people that can win the stage. I think that's basically it for our intro of this stage. And I think the next thing we're going to do is dive into Tirreno because that's another race that happened today. Tirreno Adriatico Stage 3. Now, we know we've been a bit remiss in not telling you the overall start list or previewing this race properly. And that's kind of ASO's and the UCI's fault. RCS probably, RCS being the uh, owner of Tirreno, probably weren't very happy about the positioning of Tirreno in the race calendar, the revised UCI race calendar. Second week of the Tour de France, probably not the ideal place for your one-week stage race. It's normally a tune-up for the Giro, and it remains as such this year. The Giro starts in, I think, in about 25 or 24 days. So it is a one-week test for those those riders. And The third stage started in Poyonica and finished in Saturnia. It is a stage that is basically a hilly stage. We've got two climbs, or actually the same climb recurring twice, that was very notable. For the first 100 kilometers, it's relatively flat. A few hills in there, but nothing major. And the race basically starts the moment we hit the Poggio Murella for the first time, which is the uh, most important climb of the day today. We've got it roughly about 70 kilometers from the line and then also with about 15 kilometers from the line. So a very important climb because it is very steep. 10.8% average, 1.6 kilometers in length and 21% at its steepest sections. And if that happens the last moment at nine kilometers before the line, it's basically the way is basically the place to ride away from if you want to launch an attack towards the end of the stage. So for the uh, punchers, that is a place to handle some attacks on. Nonetheless, some interesting facts about that climb, the Poggio Murella, is the fact that it was climbed a lot by Pantani in the past during his training rides. And for that, Tirino has decided to uh, put a statue for him on top. This is not really tourism here, but it's cycling history, so I did want to add it in. And from now on onwards, that climb will be known as the Mulo del Pirata, so named after the Pantani himself. Really? Yeah, really. You're not joking? I'm not joking. Wow, the, uh, the promotion of Italian races and their approach to the history of some of the more questionable questionable periods in the history is very different to, <laughs> to ASO. But anyway, I won't interrupt again. It's just It always makes me laugh how, yeah. Zero and RCS showed footage of Pantani going ham up Europa and uh, as promotion for the Giro, but he got they kicked him out of the race three days later. Anyway, I digress. No more cynicism. Continue, Benji. Nonetheless, I do agree. I don't want to add to that. I do certainly agree that it's a bit weird that they keep doing that, but yeah, I guess it's their choice of marketing. Nonetheless, in regards to the stage, we had an early breakaway with some interesting riders like Pascal Einkorn for Jumbo. We also had Matt Holmes for Lotto and Hermann Pensteiner who was good in the Vuelta, if I recall correctly, last year for Bahrain-McLaren. The action really started at the first time they went over to Poggio Morella, which was about 70 kilometers from the line. 
on that climb, we had one rider, Benjamin Thomas, basically break away from the front group. In the peloton, nothing major happened. Some people already lost contact, though, because it's a very steep section, and you saw the riders suffer already. And Vanderpool already showed some weakness, because I had Vanderpool written down for this one, but with hot weather and maybe the climb is a bit too long, that certainly plays into a potential disadvantage for him, as he has already said that hot weather doesn't really suit him too much in stages that were earlier this season in Italy as well, like San Remo and such, because I recall that being in the heatwave period. Nonetheless, after that Poggio Murella, we also saw that Froome was dropped, and that was actually because there was a crash. Savini crashed, and Froome was held up a bit, so he came back, but he also did some work after that and basically left the front once again and dropped off the back of the peloton. So Froome didn't really come into play towards the end of the stage. Seems like he's here to train himself a bit and might be a domestique for Thomas in the upcoming stages, but for himself, he certainly won't be going for a GC thing. Does that surprise you or? No, that doesn't surprise me. He's not even he's not even riding Giro. This they're here to tune up Thomas and get everything in order for Thomas's Giro attempt. So that doesn't surprise me. I actually thought Froome looked pretty good. Like it's a really hard climb. Uh yeah, he was going backwards and probably was on the wrong side of it even without the crash, but I thought he looked fine and I'm sure he will actually do some work for Thomas in probably stage five where there's a mountaintop finish if he's still there. But yeah, I'm not surprised by that. After that initial ascension, we had EF hit the front. They started pacing quite a lot for the leader, Michael Woods. I think he broke his femur at Paranis, but I could be wrong about that. So at that point onwards, they kept on pacing. The gap towards the breakaway was smaller and smaller. And basically it started happening in the action once we hit the last time on the Poggio Murella with about 13 to 12 kilometers to go. The climb started. Holmes attacked at the front in the breakaway. We saw Ainkhorn drop. Bernstein was the last person that held on to Holmes. But they were basically caught up by the peloton where Seneschal attacked. And after that, we had some attacks in the peloton as well. Yeah, primarily Mike Woods. EF looked really good. We saw Ineos pacing on the front. Or, or not pacing, sorry. Rather, they had Thomas in good position on the front. And Woods, rather haphazardly, we saw him making his way up the left-hand side beside them trying to get into good position. And, yeah, he attacked on the last climb of the day reasonably early on it. Um, there was, like, a long... The reason I think Van der Poel struggled on it, because it, it wasn't just, like, this initial st- a steep bit that you have to punch over and then you're fine. It, it did drag for a fair bit. And, yeah, Woods attacked. He gapped Thomas, Vlasov, Fulsang, Micah. Initially, there was, like, a small group of four. They did grow as they didn't really work together. Um, and yeah, Woods went clear onto the descent on his own. Raphael Micah attacked out of that group of GC favourites and bridged across to to Mike Woods. So they had Bora Hansgrohe and Education First there. That was on the descent. But uh, before the descent, there was then like a third group containing Jack Haig pacing back Simon Yates. And I think Patrick Conrad was there for Bora Hansgrohe as well as Tanel Kanga for Education First who was just trying to get in there to disrupt proceedings. Fausto Masnada was there. I think he actually might have been in that second group, the quick step rider. I don't believe it was James Knox. He wasn't there at all, which uh, was kind of surprising. And, yeah, Grant Thomas was looking really good, actually. I think he looked very good on this climb, steep climb. Uh, Vlasov, Fulsang in magic form from before. I'm not sure if those guys actually went full today or not, but 
yeah, Thomas looked pretty good. Vanderpool got dropped actually quite badly, I think. Um, no, I'm not criticizing him for getting dropped. I'm just saying he got dropped by quite a lot quite quickly on that steep section. And it did turn out to be a climb that was suited suiting the pure GC men climbers, the guys you expect to be see winning Milano Torino when it has the normal finishing climb to the Basilica. Those sort of riders were the riders going clear. You know, Woods in particular is one of those. Woods, Yates, uh, Kangert, Micah. It was a technical descent after the, the climb and sort of narrow, twisty roads. I immediately thought, well, Rafael Micah, he, he is going to catch Mike Woods, I think, pretty quickly and, and did so. There was this one one corner or series of corners stood out to me in particular. It was a sweeping right-hander, which then sharpened up even further, becoming even a 180 turn, but an extended one. And then it moved in immediately maybe even off camber into another left-hander without any time really to transition between the corners into a left-hander that was also like a 180 that doubled back on itself. Very technical, and Micah caught up to Woods at that point. And Jack Haig actually was on the front pacing for what was now a, a large group that was a combination of groups two and three, containing all the riders I mentioned before except for Matthew Vanderpoel. And they were only about four to five seconds behind Micah and Woods. And at that point, Benji, did you think they were going to catch them? On one end, I thought they would catch them, but honestly, the cooperation in the second group was horrible because you've got two riders from the same team, Astana, Flazo and Fulsang, who do what Astana usually does, sit up and not do anything and not work together. And I think I've repeated this quite a bit already, but Astana's tactics, oh my goodness, like... The only time I ever saw them work together recently is in Lombardia, where Vlasov had to offer himself up towards the end. But in any other race, they keep both their leaders up there. I recall even there being a race, was it Tritico? I'm not sure, where there were three riders of Astana in the second group and they just didn't pace together at all. Giro de Emilia, their tactics even there were a little bit weird and it just ended up that... Vlasov was way too strong on the final climb. Like there wasn't actually that good cooperation between them and the chase for uh, UR Almeida was the rider being chased, but it was a, they didn't really help the chase too much. Actually, they relied on I can't remember who was the team. Trek Trek just did all the chasing for them. So I guess that's why Astana were happy to sit on if other teams are going to do the chasing. But the problem with them sitting on, like I get. I get it. If another team is going to sit on and do the chasing and they're doing a good job of it, sure, don't help them if they're not forcing you to. But it was so obvious that Jack Haig, who was probably quite tired after the climb and then had to bring back Simon Yates to the second group and then lead out, lead the descent. And then we have a 5K sort of rolling drag, including a one-kilometer uphill drag to the finish. Jack Haig on his own is not going to be as strong as Mike Wood's and Rafael and Mike are working together. That's no knock on Jack Haig. That's just basic maths. So that gap was five seconds. It immediately built, went out to about 13 seconds, held stable there for quite a while while Haig was emptying himself completely. He eventually, and it's not just us saying this, uh, Magnus Backstedt and um, oh, who was the other commentator on there with him? Matt Stevens. They, they're a really good pairing, actually, on uh, Eurosport. They were saying, why is no one helping 
Mitchell and Scott because Vlasov and Fulsang, they have, they have numbers. Tanel Kangert for Education First was second wheel. And I, I knew the second that Haig pulls off, which he did with maybe two Ks to go, and he flicked through, Kangert just sat there. They all fanned out five or seven wide, and the gap went from 15 to 27 seconds in one second. Um, don't ask me how that's possible, but it is, and that actually did happen. So w- what do you think actually should have happened, Benji? If you're, star- if you're a starter, though, you know you might be saying, well, we got stage five. We're probably going to gain time on that mountaintop finish there. Why should we pull? Why, don't, why doesn't Masnada pull? Why doesn't Simon Yates pull? Like, what do you, what do you think should have happened? I think there needs to be a clear decision made at Astana because in these races, you can genuinely win the stage here. Woods obviously would have the sprint upper hand, but Fulsang has one has one reduced bunch sprints in the past. And maybe he might not win it, but he might be able to even try for it. And now they've got no chance and nothing related to a stage win here. They've lost some time on Woods, which probably is not horrible considering they will probably make that up in the big mountains, but Woods is not a terrible climber either, so he won't drop directly off their wheel the moment it goes up on a large climb like stage five. So I feel like if they go to the Giro with this strategy, they're going to lose time in lots of stages to people, and it might turn out to lose them a potential Giro victory there. Well, I, I'm not sure it, I'm not sure they will lose time on stages. I think what will happen is they will fail to drop Thomas or Yates when, you know, that instead of putting Vlasov on the front, absolutely nuking it and then getting full sang to finish or the reverse, because I, I think it should be the reverse in the Giro and having full sang lead out really, 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 really hard uh, because either, either of them are going to lose time to Thomas on in the time trials. So I'm not sure a two leader strategy is going to work too much unless they use them as attackers where they, they don't pull and they just attack and f- try and force Yumbo or, or Ineos to chase. Yumbo uh, will have Kreuzweig there. I don't mind either way, but both of them sitting on and just hoping something happens for them isn't isn't going to really work in the Giro, and it ha- didn't work today in Terreno Stage Three. I also think I also want to criticize Simon Yates a little bit too. I feel like he's a guy who he just he if he has a domestique there. And I've seen this a lot because Mitch, Mitchell and Scott are an Australian team. I feel like he just, he'll put Haig on the front and instead of helping Haig and rolling turns, trying to chase back, yeah, he'll just sit there. And unless, if his domestique doesn't bring back the other guy fully, then yeah, then it's not going to happen. He's not going to contribute. And he didn't even, I think, contest the sprint really well for the, for the third place on this stage. So even though, yeah, Haig did pretty good work, Yates, I think, came on the stage, yeah, 11th. So he came last in that group. So maybe he didn't really feel well over the top of the climb, in which case they should have, yeah, they should be running for Haig. So that didn't really make sense. And it's what Leonard Kamner said in the interview. Kamner said a lot of these GC guys, they they won't pull turns because it's the domestique's job when if they just pulled a little bit, it, w- it would help out so much. It would make such a difference if they pulled a bit, you know, like, who is he referring to in the crosswinds? Port and Landa not pulling and Pogaccia pulling. Same today. It, why didn't Masnada pull? Why didn't Thomas pull a little bit? Or Yates? Just if everyone immediately gets on the same page, yes, you, you don't each have a domestique, but 
just roll a turn for five seconds each. It's not going to hurt you too much, and it actually means you have a possibility of catching back up to Woods and Micah. Uh, Wilco Kelderman as well was there for Sunweb. He actually came third in this stage, winning the reduced bunch, reduced sprint for uh, for third. But yeah, that's what I think should happen, but it ends up that most of the time the other riders don't pull because they don't want to be taken advantage of. There's a difference between the tactics Woods and Micah should be employing and a chase group. Like there's certain situations where you should be sitting on and you riders pull too much. And there's others where if you just pull for five seconds, especially on like a flat section like this, it's not going to cost you. Do you think, yeah, do you think it's impossible to, for those other riders to pull Benji or like, why, why don't you think those other riders pulled through when Haig pulls off and why do they all look at each other? Firstly, Masnada, on paper, he was here to be working for Knox. So I'm not sure where Knox ended, but if Knox was in the group behind that, and he indeed was, then that might be the reason that Masnada's not pulling, to make sure that Knox is not too far behind in GC on people with him, because in the larger climbs, I see the Koenig. So that's one person. In regards to the others, you have Lazov and and uh, Fulsang, I dare to say that they want to save their energy for stage five because they should be stronger than quite a few of the others there. Thomas and Yates, well, you're right on that. But on the other end, why would Thomas spend energy going after a Mike and a Woods if he potentially has the confidence that he can take them out in GC? Because we know that Ineos is not really overly caring about the individual stage wins compared to the overall stage race GC. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. I guess there's an explanation for everything. I still think I still think a lot of those riders working, uh, particularly Thomas Yates and Sergio Now wouldn't have really hurt them. But to the finale, that gap was twenty seven seconds with seven hundred meters to go. It was actually more of a climby finish than a that didn't look like a false flat uphill to me. It looked like an actual climby finish. Not that steep, but still yeah, quite you know, quite a difficult finish. Micah and Woods on their own, and I know people are going to say that this is ridiculous what I'm saying. And you know, Michael Matthews came on one of the videos and said, "Listen, I, I couldn't hear the team radio at all." But it does it does make me wonder. I, you got go and watch go and watch any of the F1 highlights, the Formula One highlights, and all the race radio uh, videos they put up, and the teams will be like scenario seven. Scenario seven, and that means something. That means what they need to do, you know, whether they need a block or whatever or, or hold position or pit next. Like, it means something. It makes me wonder, do, in situations like that, should you just have for, for Micah scenario one, which means you have enough time, you've got 30 seconds on the chase group, you can begin, you do not need to pull through, you can begin to play cat and mouse, get yourself into good position for the sprint. Because... He clearly didn't know. He clearly didn't know where the the peloton were. He kept looking over his shoulder a lot, um, like a, multiple times in the finale. He then pulled really late, went to the front, went to the middle of the road, uh, which was a little bit unusual. Went to the middle of the road, was in quite a light gear, and Magnus Backstep called this out really well straight away on the commentary. It was in a really light gear, looking over the wrong shoulder, trying to see where the peloton were, and Wood stepped off him with like, uh, 175 to go uphill so quite a way out but Michael didn't even know he'd started sprinting for like a, pr- a proper second and a half didn't know by the time he looked around and saw that Woods was gone 
when you look at the overhead shot, there was a pretty big gap. There was no real draft to be had there, and Woods Woods won easily. Given the legs that Woods seemed to have and how Micah did, eh, he's probably going to win the sprint anyway, Mike Woods. But it's just interesting to, to me uh, that, yeah, someone could bungle the, the sprint like that to not even really be competitive in the finale. He kind of gave it to Woods as the way it turned out. Am I being too harsh, Benji? Or, or why don't you say, is my F1 thing ludicrous? Or do you think that could be implemented in in pro cycling? I think the F1 thing is also because the uh, data that day want to say to the riders is public on TV and such. So isn't that not to kind of hide to the other teams what you actually mean with scenario one? Because I'm not 100% in F1, so I don't know what the delay there is, but... Yes, yes, that's that's also correct. That's also correct. But it's also useful for the, for the quick provision of informa- information, you know, like sometimes in a finale, in a, in a sprint like that with Mike and Woods, they've got... You know, it's a second here or there really counts for making decisions. So, yeah, I feel like someone saying the peloton is chasing, but not really that strongly. They're 27 seconds behind you. You can begin to get into good position against uh, Woods, etc. Like that, that can be, especially the quality of their radios uh, don't sound too good all the time. It seems like just being able to be like scenario X, scenario X uh, would be pretty effective. Maybe some teams do that. Maybe. I don't know how to run a pro cycling team. But anyway, that was Tirreno Adriatico Stage 3. Quite a nice profile, 217-kilometer stage. A very interesting finish, actually. What do you make... Where, where do you see Van der Poel? As someone, someone in the in the, in the north of uh, Europe, Benji, I'm sure you have access to the Flemish and Dutch Dutch media, which I do not. What What's the sentiment around Van der Poel this season and his form coming into Roubaix, Tour of Flanders, Amstel, Liège, and Flesche? Well, I think it's a bit broader than just Vanderpool in the sense that there's always been a hardcore competition between Vanderpool fans and Vanard fans. And last year, it was pushing more to Vanderpool being the MVP of the season there. And this year, it's basically all Vanard that's on the media. And because of that, everything towards Vanderpool is less and less People aren't negative towards him necessarily, but they're just talking about Vanard all the time that they're not really talking too much about Vanderpool in that sense. And additionally, the media does have like, they've written some negative articles as a consequence of, for example, Milano Sanremo and such. Vanderpool won the, he won the national championships with like 400 normalized power. He came third in Duravenkers uh, over Isha and fourth in the European Champs road race. And got some quite nice results. I think the best result he's had since the resumption of lockdown was 10th in uh, Lombardia. That was a crazy result for someone his size. It was just, I was very, very impressed by that. You're right about that, but I do feel like the one thing I've noticed in Van der Poel's results is that his positioning is always kind of off. I think in MSR, he was not in an ideal position. I think in European Championships, for sure, in that sprint, he was not in the right position. At the start of the uh, Poggio Morello today, he was not in a good position. Maybe he wasn't feeling the legs at the moment because he did drop quite quickly. But I feel like positioning is a real issue there at the moment. Yeah, maybe. I've always felt like that and people have said it's the opposite. People have said that Wout van Aert's the one with positioning and tactical problems and it's actually Van der Poel who's slightly better. I have no bias towards either. I'm obviously all the way in Australia. 
I've only ever just seen their races. I've never even read the coverage. I've never even really seen a lot of their cyclocross races. All I've seen is them on the road. And to me, while Van Aert has always seemed a little bit more, a little bit more strategically minded, and Van der Poel is just like I'm going to mash for the cash because I have literally have eight thousand watts, and that can't. I've always said that can't help you forever in World Tour races. Like World Tour, is such a such a high level that yeah, you can't. I'm not sure you can do that in Paris Roubaix Tour of Flanders. And he tried, you know, he tried to do the same thing in the World Champs Road Race, pulled way too hard ran out of glycogen in the cold and uh, it cost him. But, yeah, I'm interested to see him doing a full classic season. I, I can't wait. I'm so, so excited about it. And, yeah, just on that point, Re, me having no horse in the race between Van der Poel and, and well, Van Aert, just to for, forestall some of the comments, I'm not sure about Benji. He's probably the same. I don't really have any favourite riders at all. i pretty pretty neutral on all the riders. You know, obviously probably got a bit of a – soft spot for like Kamner and Haig and stuff because they help, you know, they've been on the channel, etc. But other than those obvious ones and Michael Matthews as well, yeah. So the Australians, the Australians a little bit, but even so, like I don't really have any favourites or non-favourites. I just like watching the races, to be honest. So people thought we were a little bit harsh on Bennett yesterday. I'm an, I'm literally an Irish citizen. I got my Irish passport in the room. So <laughs> that's certainly not the case. I was happy to see that from Bennett. But yeah. Benji, do you have favorites? Yeah, I can't. I don't want to speak for you. One rider, Vincenzo Nibali, and that's basically the only one you will ever hear bias from from me. And I can assure you that will be biased if I speak about him, but I'll try and tone it down. With other riders, not really. If they're Belgian, I would be happy if they win, but I would not necessarily judge them differently. So I, uh, I don't necessarily have any other biases outside of Vincenzo Nibali. Yeah, so just wanted to make that statement. Otherwise, Torino Stage 3, the other good result was, I think, Kelderman coming third in that reduced uh, bunch sprint for the third position was actually quite a nice result for him. He's obviously leaving Sunweb uh, after this season, just like just about every other sort of top rider. But now we'll go to a quick bit of transfer news before the end of the pod. The first transfer is a pretty big one, actually. We had a rider that was riding for UAE the last few years. He won a stage at the Santos Sudananda. His name is Jasper Philipson. He's going to be joining Alpes and Phoenix, the team of Vanderpool and Tim Medellin. So they've got three riders that can actually do a sprint there then. So that's going to be quite packed. I'm not sure how they will share the roles and share the team there. And basically the races throughout those three riders because Merlier and Philipson, both pretty good Belgian sprinters and still pretty good talent. So I'm curious to see what he's going to do there. Do you think that it's going to be troublesome to have so many sprinters or people with the same goals in the same team or oh no because i think i think philipson's a cut above uh Merlier. i think his potential is obviously way higher but i i kind of i'm struggling to understand what sort of rider he is i thought he was going to be a, a pure sprinter what sort of rider is he he's got three pro wins one of those being the uh santos tour down under he won one stage in the uh tour of utah back in 2018 yeah, his one win this year, Jasper Philipson, was at Tour de Limousin uh, Stage 3, which, again, was not really against top sprinters at all. It'd be Jake Jake Stewart and Tim de Klerk. Stewart is a British rider for uh, FTJ, the older continental FTJ team, in more of a classics man. So it does look like Philipson's more of a classics rider. He's only got one World Tour win under the belt so far, and that was at Tour de Limousin last year, so not 
not world tour world <laughs> not really world tour um but yeah it will be interesting to see how they use him i think he is going to be better than Molière next year though yeah i do want to add to that that indeed he has shown stuff in classics but i've got the feeling he's going to be that kind of sprinter that is able to ride against Babelham, for example or even be up there in a Kruder Bristol Kruder maybe but that's going to be a uh, a bit difficult already. I think that he tried to do the couple classics and failed a bit last year. But yeah, anyway, next rider, the last uh, one of the day. It's not a new transfer. It's one we've spoken about, I think, yesterday or the day before. Filippo Concha, the rider who was joining Lotto Sudal, he has a bit of a troublesome moment here because he apparently signed a contract with Lotto, but already had a valid and signed contract with Androni. So it reminds me of, uh, of Sosa signing for both Trek and Sky in the past. And the guy from Androni, Johnny Savio, is certainly unhappy with that. And he's already getting his lawyers ready. Now, what do you see as a consequence there? Because you are the ex-lawyer here, so I'm going to throw it at you and hope that you can say something about it. <laughs> well, I've actually still got my practicing certificate in Queensland. So just not a pra- ex, but not really an ex-lawyer at the moment. That will lapse soon, though. Um it looks like Androni, if they got the valid contract for him this year and next year, then then they're right to get their lawyers involved. Uh, that's his contract. All all contracts, like pro cycling contracts, have an exclusivity contract in it. You can't go and sign another contract with another cycling team to perform cycling services for them. Even to do things like the uh, the criteriums after sort of after the Tour de France, things like that. Like I'm pretty sure in most contracts where Carapaz went to do that criterium when he was at Movistar and I don't think he told them and didn't get permission. In a lot of contracts, I'm not I don't know the details of his, that can actually be a breach of a breach of the contract. You need to often get permission to do things like that. Um but certainly signing for another team is not permitted under the under his existing contract. If he does indeed have one with Androni, he probably does, to be honest. And it looks like this is going to end up being a buyout. So Lotto Sudal will have to pony up some cash to pay to Androni to buy it, you know, buy out the rest of his contract. Happens quite a lot in football. Happens a fair bit with Androni as well. Um, I can't remember what happened with Egan Bernal. I can't remember if it was a buyout or something. There was some clause though where his agent or whoever he was on with whoever negotiated his contract at Androni got a very, very nice balloon payment when Ineos signed him, uh, when he went world tour with Ineos and maybe even when he won the tour de France as well. So interesting, the Androni guys seem to be pretty savvy operators actually, and they do bring through a lot of good riders, but that'll be interesting to see what happens. What sort of rider is he? Well, he's basically came fifth on the GRU 23, so you got to be somewhat of a climber to do that. And he did pretty well on the uh, climbing stages in Aprica, for example, but also on the uh, Montespluga finish. He was coming eighth, so didn't lose too much time to Pitcock there. Nonetheless, he's significantly worse than Pitcock at the moment. But yeah, he's got potential if you come top five in the GRU 23. You can't really say that it's a bad rider. So it's going to be a good addition. We said it on the uh, previous one, so I believe that he's going to be good help for Lotto Sudal, but what role in the team he will have, I'm not sure yet. That's all from us today. Make sure if you do enjoy the pod, we've already hit 100 five-star reviews on the Apple uh, podcast play, which is insane, guys. Like, By the way, compare that to a lot of massive, well-known household name podcasts. 
even struggle to get there. And, and we only launched this two weeks ago. So the response to this has been, been amazing. We're really happy. And uh, on that note, ciao. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.